Okay, so uh, friends, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, past few months, really, then you would know that we just got done preaching through a whole letter, which is called the letter of Ephesians. And this is a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches that were in the city called Ephesus. Okay, we finished that letter last Sunday, the whole thing, and now we're starting from here on out to the end of the year, we're going to do a seven-week sermon series on the book of Revelation, okay? But we're not going to talk about the whole book. We're just going to uh, talk about uh, chapters 2 and 3, which is the section of the book where the Apostle John, the person that God used to write the letter of Revelation, directly addresses seven different churches that existed around the area where he was exiled at that time called the island of Patmos. Okay, so the island of, around this island of Patmos, where the apostle John was exiled to because of the gospel, existed seven different churches. And the book of Revelation was written to make sure and to help these seven churches remain faithful to the Lord, to the gospel. Now, what's important, and I think really interesting here, is that John addresses these seven churches in chapters 2 to 3 in chiastic form, which is just a fancy way of saying in sandwich form, okay? So picture in your heads a burger, okay? The first and the last church John addresses, which is churches number 1 and 7, were the worst ones. They were threatened with destruction if they don't repent, really bad. And then second layer in, churches 2 and 6, they were the best ones. They had almost nothing wrong with them. It was filled with encouragement, good job, keep going. And then in the middle of the burger, churches three, four, and five, they all got mixed reviews. Each had some good things about them and some bad things about them as well. Okay, so if you were to describe the state of the overall church back then in John's day, it'd be equivalent to a below average burger. That's the feel. Okay, at the top and the bottom, you got two very moldy breads. Okay, church number one and seven, they're the worst ones. And then the next layer, churches number two and six, you have two very lush, scrumptious, fresh, yummy vegetables with dressing. I don't know, whatever it is that you put in burgers, okay? And then in the middle of the burger, the three churches in the middle, church number three, four, and five, they're like grade C beef patties. Okay, they're kind of good, they're kind of bad, you know, it's a below average burger. Now, this is important for us today because if you remember the significance of the number seven in the Bible, what does that symbolize? Wholeness, right? Totality, completion, exhaustiveness. So God's commentary here on the seven churches weren't actually just a commentary to the seven churches that existed back then. It's actually a commentary on the whole state of the church everywhere at all times. God's saying here that, generally speaking, if you were to grade the overall state of the global church most of the time until Jesus comes again, it would be equivalent to a below average burger. And you're saying, Tez, why are you being so harsh to the church? These weren't my reviews. <laughs> These were God's reviews. That's what he's saying. You see how honest God is and realistic the Bible is, it's, the church is kind of okay. 
you know, some churches, one in seven, is close to ruin. Some churches, two and six, are doing really well. Most churches, three, four, and five, have mixed reviews. That's the church. And I'd be curious to know that by the end of the series, which church out of the seven here would you say, CCC, we're closest to? Or maybe which uh, good things and bad things from all these churches can we relate with, okay? Um, so let's start the first church. I think this will be a sobering exercise for us all. Let's start the first church. Remember, one of the worst ones, right? One and seven were the worst ones. And you'd be surprised which church it is. Look at verse one in your printouts. One of the worst churches here is the church in Ephesus. Look at that. The church we just got done studying for the past month or few months. What happened to them? They seemed to be doing so well. The book of Ephesians had no rebukes in it. It was just kind of encouragement, you know, keep going, you're doing well. And in, in 10 to 20 years, it went downhill. What a sobering reminder it is for us, CCC, because apparently starting well doesn't guarantee ending well. What happened to him? Well, let's get into it. This is the word of God, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus says the Lord. Four things I want to point out from our passage today from the book of, uh, from, uh, from Revelation to the church of Ephesus. First, the subtle vanishing of love. Second, the rekindling of love lost. Third, the danger of remaining loveless. And last, God's tree of love promised. All right, first point, the subtle vanishing of love. So this letter was written, you would say, depending on how you date the book of Revelation, around 10 to 20 years after the Apostle Paul, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians that we just got done studying, okay? So in just 20 years or so, this Ephesians church, a church went from being a really strong church that we saw in the letter of Ephesians to a church that was losing its light, John says here in verse 5. But the thing is about this process of dimming light, it wasn't loud. It wasn't visible. No one noticed it. That, that's what's tough about it. It actually was really hard to notice. Look at verses 2 and 3. From the outside, this Ephesian church probably looked like it was still doing really, really well. I know your good works, God says in verse 2. Your toil. So they're working really, really hard. 
They're busybodies. They got tons of programs going on, Bible studies, community groups maybe. They're putting in the hours for kingdom work. I see your patient endurance, God continues, referring to their patience in enduring persecution. Uh, By the way, that's who the Nicolaitans are in verse 6. They were a sect of Christianity at the time who did not endure persecution. The heat got so hot, the culture kept persecuting them, and they lost their love. They abandoned their faith, and they started to live immorally and heretically. But the Ephesians, they remained faithful to God's truth. They also were praised for not bearing with those who are evil, verse 2 says, meaning they had high ethical standards of life as well. What a great church. And on top of that, they had good, faithful, robust, apostolic, orthodox, did I say orthodox already? Theology. Look at the end of verse 2. It says that you've, you've, you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but actually aren't. They look like they're sharing the truth, but they're not. You have enough biblical foundation. You have enough of a theological instinct to see that and say, false. Not true. I mean, this is a pretty good church. If you ask anyone, by anyone's standards, they, they knew their doctrine, they were hardworking, they were steadfast in the gospel, they had high moral standards. But, God said in verse 4, I have this against you. And it's like, what could anyone have anything against a church like this? I have this against you, God says. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means that although they're working really, really hard, it means that although they're preaching sound doctrine from the pulpits and they were living moral, godly lives, they weren't giving in to the world, they forgot the reason of why they were doing all of that in the first place, which was originally for love of God expressing itself through love for others. So, Covenant City Church, it is a possibility. I'm not saying we're here today. I hope not. But it is a possibility there could come a time where we keep preaching faithful exegetical sermons every Sunday, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And as a result of that, we can identify and pinpoint and protect ourselves from false preachers and heretical doctrines out there. And also because of that, we live moral lives, have high ethical standards, and we endure persecution. We don't give in to the world, and we continue to put in hours for kingdom work to where we are known by the city as that church that works really, really hard. But as we do all of that ministry, hidden underneath our breath, or perhaps deeper, within the silence of our own hearts, audible only to ourselves and God, is a constant sigh that whispers, man, church would be so much easier if people just got out of the way. My ministry here, my volunteer work here would be so much easier if people just got out of the way. Those are the first whispers of dimming light. We're no longer in it for love of God and others. Maybe we're in it because it's just something we've been doing for a while now. 
And without realizing it, at some point, it's just become something we do. Maybe the church has grown bigger now, and our motivation has switched from love of God and others to a need of personal affirmation. Maybe we're just naturally type A go-getters, you know, and we just enjoy hard work. We just feel satisfaction for getting things done. Maybe we can't stand feeling unaccomplished, and we have this need to prove to ourselves and to prove to others that we're not a waste of space. I'm not saying that routine is bad. I'm not saying that feeling good about uh, church growth is bad or being natural go-getters is bad or wanting to feel good about accomplishments is bad. Those are all fine things. But when we start to feel like people are getting in the way of our routine, people are getting in the way of our church growth, people are becoming roadblocks toward us reaching our goal instead of them being our goal. Those are signs of dimming light. And if we don't repent, John says, if we let that whisper grow louder, Jesus himself promised in verse 5 that he will personally come to CCC and remove his light from our midst. Again, only two churches received a level of threat at this height, the first church and the last church. Don't ignore those whispers. God's warning us here. You think it's nothing. But Satan's a patient gardener of evil. He will maliciously water that seed. And slowly, in 20 years or so, just like a tree can burst through the toughest concrete, so will this. And let me guarantee you, the seed is already here. It's here. It's been planted in our church. You know how I know? Because I hear those whispers in my own heart every single day. That's how I know. You gotta fight it. This passage warns us to take it seriously before it's too late. But how? What can we do to protect ourselves from this subtle dimming of the light? Well, let's go to our second point, the rekindling of love lost. Lucky for us, God tells us the solution, the way to uproot the seed of dimming light. Look in verse five, he says, here's how you do it. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Okay, now before I get into it, let me just, I think this is worth pointing out, that the, the solution for lovelessness is not to stop working hard. Okay, the, the solution for lovelessness is not to stop having high moral standards or uh, to stop studying your Bible and stop being wise theologians. You know, the, God commended the Ephesians for these things. These are good things. Keep doing them. You know, it's not either or. Don't stop doing those things, but at the same time, John tells us here in verse 5, God's telling you to do this as well. Remember from where you're fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. A preacher once helpfully summarized this by saying, remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, return. Remember what? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember the initial desire you had that first made you want to do any of this in the first place? Why did you initially start serving community groups and Bible studies? What, like, why did you agree to do that role? Because you loved God's people, and you wanted the gospel to root so deeply in their hearts. 
Why did you initially volunteer in the Mercy Ministry program? Because the mercy you received in the gospel made your heart break for those in this world who are not receiving justice and mercy, who are helpless and are in need of mercy. Why did you join the music team? Because your soul can't help but turn these beautiful truths of God into poetic melody and usher others into its sweetness. That's why. Why did you first join the children's ministry and submit yourself week after week to those stressful jumbles of chaotic joy? Because you remember Jesus said, let these little ones come to me. And you longed with all your heart that not one child in that room would experience even a day where Jesus was not their Lord and Savior. Why did you first start sharing the gospel to other people? Because you know where their sin will lead them, and you will sacrifice anything in order for them not to end up there. Why did we plant this church? Some of you have been with us from the beginning. Why did we plant CCC? Why did we work so hard to make all of this exist? Because Jesus said that if you love me, you will feed my sheep, and we loved him. So we wanted to do anything in our power to care for his sheep with solid food because we love him. And look, if you haven't forgotten those things, then good on you. But for the most of us, including myself, these things, these things aren't always easy to remember, especially as the church grows you know, and things start to feel a bit more institutionalized and activities that once felt fresh and new begin to feel repeated routines and teams and systems are put in place and perhaps that system tempts our eyes to start looking at individual human souls and turning them into mere numbers on a sheet. I don't know what it is, but I have to remind myself every single day, again, these things aren't bad. As a church grows, we can't function well without systems and these things. Those are fine things. Keep doing them. But as we do these things, we got to continually ask ourselves, does all of this still exist in order to love Jesus and feed his sheep? Or is it beginning to feel like Jesus and his sheep exist in order to feed into all of this? Which one is it? And if that's the case, we have to repent and we have to return. And it's appropriate here that repenting is coupled with returning because that's exactly what repentance means. Repentance means make a U-turn. And maybe for some of you, this U-turn can be observable externally, like on the outside, right? Such as, for example, maybe for some of you, you haven't met up with an old friend that you once had here and you kind of lost contact with them. And, and returning here maybe means shooting them a WhatsApp, have a coffee, meet up, and reconnect with them. Remember how things used to be? Or maybe repentance here for you means that you need to serve in a ministry. You really haven't, you've joined the church, you haven't for a while or ever, um, and join a ministry, serve, because sometimes exposure to others could lead to, could, could lead to love for others. Or maybe you need to rework again your heart muscles that once cared for those who were mourning and those who were exhausted and hurting, and you need to reach out to them. I heard a Singaporean pastor 
recently say that he was able, the only reason why he was able to push through the depression that he experienced after his wife died is because one of his friends just kept taking him out to dim sum every week. He called it dim sum therapy. You don't need to be an expert counselor to do that. You just need to love people. Or maybe for some of you, this U-turn isn't so observable on the outside. Maybe you've been doing all the right things externally. You've served, you've volunteered, you've participated in different programs, but for some reason, you could honestly care less about the people there. You could honestly care less about anyone there. You're just doing it for other reasons. I don't know what. And, and I know that it's scary to take an honest look at our heart. I haven't done my physical checkup for a while now, and I, I'm starting to doubt that it's because I don't have time. I think maybe it's because I just don't want to see what might be there. It's scary to do that. And it's scary to find out that perhaps my heart has been loveless now for a while. But if we don't, Jesus might take our lapstand away from us altogether, and we would be lightless. Now, what does that mean, though, to be lightless, to be without a lampstand? Okay, let, let's go to our third point. The danger of remaining loveless. So the lampstand here, I believe, alludes at least to two things. Two things, two sides of the same coin, okay? On one side, the lampstand is an allusion, I believe, to God's presence. Remember in the Old Testament, where did God's presence reside? In the temple, right? The temple tent. And some of you may know this, but when you first enter the temple in the Old Testament, right before the Holy of Holies, which is like another room within the bigger temple, right? On the left side, before the Holy of Holies, I think it's the left side, you would see a lampstand with six candles and one stick or seven candles. I forget the details. But it looks like a tree, okay, on the left side. And... Um, uh, where, what does that symbolize? God's presence, the temple. Okay, so on one hand, the lampstand here, I think, represents God's, God's presence, as it was in the Old Testament of the temple. But a second thing I believe that the, uh, the lampstand uh, alludes to here is the unique way of life that God's people are called to live in this world, also known as holiness. Now, a lot of people think holiness just refers to moral purity. It's not. Holiness actually means otherness differentness, uniqueness. There's something different about you. Yes, in your moral life, but also in other things. Okay, so uh, the lampstand here uh, alludes to God's presence and also uniqueness of life. Now, how does the allusion to God's presence connect with the allusion to living holy, unique lives? Because, friends, in the Bible, the holiness and the uniqueness of God's people is the natural consequence of them having God's presence in their midst. It's one of the same thing. God's presence is the power that causes holiness to be, and uniqueness of life to be had. Okay, remember what Moses said, for example, in Exodus chapter 33? He was, God was not going to go with them, and Moses says, if your presence is not with us, how will the world know that we are your people? If your presence is not with us, what's going to be different about us compared to the rest of the world? Okay, it's two sides of the same coin. So the lampstand here represents a holy otherness that a church community will have as a result of having God's presence amongst them. And that's what Jesus says he'll take away if we don't repent. Therefore, 
it does not necessarily mean that a church who's lost its lampstand will lose all its members and die out. It doesn't mean that this church will struggle financially and fizzle out. It doesn't mean that this church will implode internally or experience external persecution to where it will be shut down. No, 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 no. This church may very well look like the Ephesian church. They may actually keep growing bigger and bigger. They may get richer and richer. They may continue to increase in influence and in fame. Outsiders might look at it and go, Wow, have you seen their 2024 calendar? It's amazing. Look at all they're doing. Look at who's in it. But the truth is, God's left that church a long time ago. And not everyone can tell, but those who have ears, our passage says, will hear, and they can tell that though this church looks bright and shiny, there's this nagging sensation of dark emptiness that hovers alongside it. Although they got well-run programs, but people are exhausted. And I don't mean physically, because people are willing to physically sacrifice a lot for something they believe in. I mean they're exhausted motivationally. They're not tired of the work. They're tired of asking the question, why are we doing this again? (laughs) They may be filled with robust theologians who have all the right answers about life and ethics, But for some reason, their answer didn't leave you feeling blessed, edified, and nurtured. Instead, it left you feeling confused of how an answer could feel so glorious and wise, yet so cold and detached, all in the same sentence. You know what those are inklings of? Those are inklings of the dimming light. God's presence is slowly departing from that church, and as a result, they start to lose the ability to tell the difference between holiness and impressiveness, between true glory and mass appeal, between knowledge of God and personal loftiness. And if they don't repent, eventually they'll lose the ability to tell the difference altogether between light and dark and would have lost their lampstand. And CCC members, if, if another church comes to your mind at this point, let's resist that temptation and let's just turn our eyes back to ourselves. Are there signs of this dimming light in our church, in our own hearts? If there is, then obey God's command. Remember, repent, return, but... There's something else we gotta do, something more. God knows better than to send us out to fight a heart issue with just commands. He knows that what we need to fight a heart issue is a weapon much stronger. We need a promise, which leads us to our last point. God's tree of love promised. So, God closes this rebuke to the Ephesian church in verse seven by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we see here this concept of the tree of life, okay? It's another allusion to this idea of God's presence because that's what the tree of life 
in the paradise of God represents. Remember, okay, go all the way back again uh, to Genesis. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, remember what happened? They were barred, they were blocked from the tree of life. So apparently the same tree of life that they weren't able to, to get in the Garden of Eden will be there in the paradise of God. And interestingly, just stick with me here, guess what the lampstand in the Old Testament temple was also meant to replicate? The, the, the lampstand in the Old Testament temple that we talked about was also meant to replicate the tree of life. If, if you read kind of how God told Israel to make this tree in Exodus 25, it looks like a menorah tree with seven branches, with different kind of uh, uh, things underneath it. And, and uh, where was this tree located at? I mean, where was this tree-shaped lampstand located at? It was located in the temple where God's presence resided. Where is the tree of life located at? In the Garden of Eden, where God's presence resides in. Okay, so we're all getting confused. It's all jumbled up and mixed up. Tons of confusing imageries here, but it was all intentional. It was all intentional. Here's to summarize what God's trying to say. He's trying to remind us of a story through all these imageries of a story that actually you all know very well. It's the story of our disobedience to God in regards to a tree all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And the story about how that disobedience to that one tree barred us and blocked us from another tree, a second tree, the tree of life that represents God's life-giving presence a tree that, that can be enjoyed to its fullness later in paradise for those who conquer, but only by those who conquer till the end. So, the application here is to remember, repent, and return daily, hourly, back to the love you had at first, or else the lampstand will be taken out of your midst and you will not partake in God's life-giving presence in the tree of life in the paradise to come. But... If we stop there, here's the thing. We can't leave it there. Because if we leave it there, what we'll have is too much unaddressed salvation anxiety. And we'll say, oh, goodness, okay. So only those who remember, repent, return daily, and only those who kind of do that enough and make it to the end uh, uh, will be granted this life? Man, I, I gotta make sure that I remember repent and return a lot then, or else I'm not gonna make it to the very end. And there's this anxiety that comes up. But see, the danger with that is that we may end up remembering, repenting, and returning, not for love of God and others, but because we just wanna make sure that we make it till the end. You see? That's not love of God or others, that's love of self. And, and I don't think that's what we're meant to be left with here after reading this passage. The only way friends, that you will truly remember, repent, and return to the love you have at first for God and others, okay, is if you're first convinced that your salvation is already secured, that you don't need to work for it anymore. That's the only way. But the big question that I, is not answered here, but I think it's implied through every verse in this passage, is how can you know that? How can you know that your salvation is secured and you can obey God here, not for love of self, but for love of others, to return to that love. And I think, friends, I hope, at this point, a picture of another tree comes to your mind. Not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we failed upon. Not just the tree of life that we have been barred from. 
but a third tree in between those trees. What tree? Let me read to you the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 39. He said, And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. The cross was described as a tree here in other places too. Why? Because it's a part of a larger story. Adam looked at the tree in Eden and told God, my will be done. Jesus looked at the tree in Golgotha and told God, your will be done. Adam caused death to all of us. Jesus, through his death, ushered us to the tree of life. You want to go back to the love you had at first, you want to kill those whispers of dimming light, you got to see the third tree. You got to see the third tree. Let me end here. This may interest you as we close. A lot of us maybe were asking the question, so what happened to the Ephesian church? Did they lose their light? Uh, what was their fate? We actually, luckily, have records of the writings of early, early church fathers in those centuries, and one of them is named Ignatius, who actually wrote another letter to the Ephesian church again. This church was getting a lot of letters from a lot of people. Ignatius uh, wrote his letter 10, and 20 year, 10 to 20 years after Revelation was written. Okay, so Ephesians, 10, 20 years, Revelation, 20, 20 years, Ignatius' letter. And according to that letter, it seemed like the Ephesian church ended up remembering the love they had at first. They repented, they returned, all was well. And if you read that letter, it's interesting. You want to know what Ignatius accredited their return to? Let me just read to you what he said. This is what Ignatius wrote to the Ephesians. Welcoming in God your much-loved name, which you possess by your righteous nature, according to faith and love in Christ Jesus our Savior. You are imitators of God, having rekindled by the blood of God your related task, you completed it perfectly. Somehow their love was rekindled, but how? By what, he said? By the blood of God. The Ephesian church found their way back. They rekindled the love they had at first. How? They saw the third tree you got to see it, where God shed his blood for our salvation. Our only hope is if you see it. Let's pray. Father, there are whisperings of that dimming light for sure in this church, in any church, that's no question. As you read in our statement of faith earlier, even the purest church on earth is subject to error. And Satan is a patient gardener. He will water that seed as it silently grows and breaks everything we work so hard to build. But silently. I pray, Father, that you would give us the eyes to see, that you would give us the ears to hear, that as we look at how this church is faring, we look at it through spiritual lenses and not measure it based upon the standards of this world.
that we would ask ourselves, is love of God and others still the driving force here? Does this exist for Jesus and his sheep, or does Jesus and his sheep exist for this? Protect us, Father. Based on our own strength, we would all run astray like sheep with no shepherd. But yet you have promised to be the good shepherd, and the good shepherd does not leave the sheep alone. He lays his life down for them. May we always behold that third tree. May we always see the place upon which our shepherd died and that we would be ushered daily to the love we had at first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends,